Hello and welcome to Ponderings from the Perch, the Little Bird Marketing Company podcast. This is the modern podcast for the modern entrepreneur. And today, especially, this is going to be for that modern entrepreneur that is the agency owner. It's a rare bug. It maybe is the craziest person um, in your social circle, but is the agency owner nonetheless. So this is a special podcast for you. And welcome my amazing guest, great friend, Peter Leviton. Great to be here. And you didn't say that in Spanish, Peter. What's going on? <laughs> uh, well, I live in Mexico, and while everything is very groovy, uh, my Spanish is coming along uh, a bit too slowly for me. I'm going to call you Señor Leviton from now on. Is Mucho that okay? gracias. Mucho gracias. <laughs> so why is the Spanish not working? What's going on? Uh, well, I'm trying to figure out how I learn. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's really a structural issue. And the other issue, unfortunately, is I live in a town called San Miguel de Allende. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's one of the things that people say about San Miguel, which is one of the fastest growing tourist towns in Mexico, if not in the world. So I, I people should look it up. I'll repeat, San Miguel de Allende, uh, is that you can get by in English here um, every day Ooh. without having to speak Spanish. Uh, the good news is I try to get off the track, you know, outside of Centro, which is mm -hmm. what's called downtown, where English is spoken by a lot of people. But uh, there's a gringo layer here, and you can get stuck in it and, frankly, not have to learn Spanish to survive. So maybe it's a good thing that when I was moved to uh, to Spain as a um, preteen, that the Spaniards are total xenophobes, and there's no way they were speaking English. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I would say this is a little friendlier than Paris. Right. Okay, good. Just All if right. we're if we're making the friendlyometer. I exactly. don't know. I mean, it seems like they might be turning over a new leaf lately in politics. So maybe they're there. This is the fresh, new and improved Paris. I don't know. All right. I we'll get see, it. We'll see how it goes. But well, Peter and I know each other. We've known each other for years now. And um, I'm going to just give the full disclaimer. I'm, I'm love about entrepreneurship. I talk on this podcast a lot about it, that we make so many mistakes. We make mistakes all the time. That is a part of entrepreneurship. And I was making a lot of big mistakes. And I reached out to Peter and was so glad he actually took us on as a client. Can you be really honest we are such a small client compared to who you deal with. Why on earth did you take us on? Well, I'll, I'll say there are two, re <laughs> there are two reasons. Uh, one, I like clients, and mm -hmm. I like to be busy, moderately busy. Let's not get too crazy. <laughs> um, I, if somebody offers me money, I, I usually take it. Uh, when we first started talking, you sounded fantastic and bright and fun, and I said, well, why not work with this person? Uh, and it was relatively early in my consulting career, so I was – frankly, interested in getting as much experience for myself in understanding agencies as possible. So, so uh, I work with agencies of all sizes. I have, I have I, small to medium size. Rarely do I work with larger agencies or I have done that. Larger agencies don't admit that they uh, are failing. So uh, it's easier to deal with medium to smaller agencies. Yeah, where I'll just tell you exactly what I think I might be doing wrong. But then you pointed out some other things that I really was doing wrong. Mm -hmm. And I will be forever indebted to you for that. And I have to say, the most interesting piece of that was you, you pulled out so much about what we did not have set in process. And you set me on an amazing path, which was to really codify what we were great at, how we could deliver it, and what were going to be the benchmarks. And not only benchmarks, but even the small little, um, the small little, uh, action steps that we needed 
to take to get there. And, and being able to mark each one of them so small on the way to the big picture was so helpful to me. And it did help build my, you know, build my agency. And here we are seven years later. And, you know, it was a key time for me too, because it was right after, I don't know if you remember this, but it was right after I had uh, lost my studio in a fire. My agency yes. had burned down yes. and it was the next year where I was like, wait a minute, we've got to really rebuild. But this time, could we, it was a little bit of a blessing in disguise. Could, could we start at the beginning and do some things right this time? And um, not, not some things right, but do more things right this time. And it was such a, such a tremendous help. But it's funny, you just said that you don't, you know, you don't work with uh, large agencies, but you come from large agency background. You are probably my most illustrious agency friend. You're, you're up there in the top five, just so you <laughs> <Lovely>. know. <laughs> well, it's, it's been a while since I worked in a huge agency, but mm-hmm. I did that. That was my start. Right. Well, talk to us a little bit. Let um, everybody know about your time and your start at Saatchi and Saatchi. And that's, you know, for so many people is like, oh, my gosh, if I could just get a job at Saatchi and Saatchi, you know, and the experience you got there must have been fantastic. So tell us a little bit about that start, even though you're reaching back quite a bit. Well, I was lucky because my first job in advertising was at an agency called Dancer Fitzgerald Sample. And most people, I'd say under the age of uh, even 45 or so, probably never heard of Dancer. Uh, People who studied the TV show Mad Men would have heard that name because that was an agency that the Mad Men guys pitched against uh, back in the 60s, 70s. Anyway, I started in the 80s, and uh, at that time, Dancer Fitzgerald Sample was – Maybe the most successful agency in New York City. It was the largest in terms of the number of people in the New York office. Our client base included uh, Procter & Gamble, General Mills, which is what I worked on, Northwest Airlines, I worked on that, uh, uh, Wrangler, HP, Toyota. So this was, a, to put it mildly, a stellar agency. Wow. And it was an agency that Saatchi & Saatchi bought a couple of years into my tenure. So I, my, my, my Saatchi world is a combination of what Dancer for Cheryl Sample was in New York, which was a very paternalistic, wonderful agency to work at, super smart, won most of its pitches. Uh, they had a training program in the good old days, actually trained us. <laughs> and that morphed into Saatchi, which was the most um, uh, self-righteous um, promotional-oriented agency uh, in the world. Uh, At the time I worked for them, they were the largest agency in the world. They had a lot of chutzpah, which I think is very important. So for me, it was a great combination of this smart New York agency and these crazy guys from London that were conquering the world. Yeah, and then so you you spent um, part of your time actually working in Europe in in some capacity with Saatchi and Saatchi, correct? Yes, I went to I went to London. I had been working on the Northwest Airlines account. I was running it for six years, which was at that time when airlines spent a lot of money, a, a huge account. Uh, and it was also the days of the 15% commission. So they spent $60 million a year, and we, we uh, generated $9 million in revenue. And, of course, everybody loved me because that was my account. And, it, by the way, it's just luck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> luck, you know, it was, I, I, I drew the right straw. Um, nonetheless, one day a new CMO comes in and, uh, as is usually the case, uh, uh, says, oh, I need a new agency because he has to prove himself. This, this was not a pleasant person, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though we were winning Effie Awards, and we're in creative wards and the airline was growing and its reputation was growing and every metric was positive, he, he fired us. And I, I'm standing there going, okay, what do I do now? And they said, we want you to move to London, run business development, some of Sara Lee, some of Johnson & Johnson. So I, I managed to get this incredible job of living in London 
being paid way too much money uh, and got to travel around Europe for a living. Unfortunately, the only way you can live in London successfully is if you're paid too much money. <laughs> I Well, it was, I think I always said that I got the last best uh, expat package before everybody woke up and said, wait a minute, um, you know, this is crazy. Right. Again, I want to say that once, once the world started shifting from 15% commission to wherever it is today, um, uh, you know, some of those great uh, payouts uh, started to uh, erode. Mm-hmm. So um, in doing that, then, how long was it, uh, that it that it took you to actually start your own agency for the first time? Well, I, I had a good, um, let me let me see, it's about a seven-year run. I, when I got back to Saatchi, New York, the agency was starting to fall apart. This was the last year that Saatchi and Saatchi was run by Morris and Charles Saatchi, uh, who then went and formed a very successful agency called M&C Saatchi. So there are two Saatchi worlds today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was, I was there in New York, and the last year the agency was having horrible problems, management problems, a lot of issues. Uh, I wasn't happy. A lot of people weren't happy. But at the same time, I was running business development, which gave me access to, I could call anybody up and have a conversation. You know, it, was, it's, it wasn't me, it wasn't about Peter, it was about the fact that I represented Saatchi. So I, I, I quote, discovered the internet, unquote, and uh, started to talk to people. I said, well, this is happening. Couldn't get my agency interested because we were having financial problems, even as large as we were. And uh, I then left in 1995 to start a company called New Jersey Online, which was one of the first newspapers online. It represented three major newspapers in New Jersey, uh, owned by a billionaire family. Uh, it was a fantastic job. We invented newspapers online. I did that for, for um, uh, four and a half, five years. And then I started another uh, company, an tech, internet technology company called Active Buddy, uh, which allowed people to talk to a computer using instant messaging primarily on the AOL network. We were famous for something called Smarter Child. Uh, When Siri was born, they referenced us. They said, we're going to follow in their footsteps. We were crushed by the dot-com bust in 2001. I was the CEO. My venture capitalists threw a few of us out of the company. I said, what am I going to do now? And I, I decided, I mean, don't shoot me for saying this, to buy an advertising agency <laughs> <laughs> in Oregon, you know, woke my t- teenage kids up one day and said, we're leaving New York, we're moving to Oregon. And it's like, you know, whatever pandemonium for a couple of weeks. And right. then everybody wound up, we, we live 20 minutes from one of the great ski mountains on the West Coast. So everybody was happy. And I owned an ad agency. Mm-hmm. You were you were next to Mount Hood, right? That was a client of mine for many many years. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, it was, uh, we lived in. We started in Bendor. I, I, I lived. Uh, I lived in Bend, Oregon. Then we built an office in Portland. And uh, so when my kids went to college, I moved to our Portland office. Everything was planned. I love it. I love it. So at Portland, um, which you know Nike in that area is famous for picking small boutique firms to do work for them. So I know that's a little bit of your experience. What kinds of accounts? were were you able to get, you know, as a small agency? That's got to be a big transition from being at Saatchi and Saatchi, and then now you have a small boutique agency. Uh, I would say, yes, it was a transition, but, uh, you know, advertising is advertising, and client needs are client needs. So right. even a small client has similar goals and objectives to a very large client. Uh, and I also like the fact that small clients tend to be more, a little bit more, I don't know if this is the right word, visceral in their approach. You know, they're smaller. They, mm-hmm. they're, they're, it's, it's not a clunky kind of giant organization, so they're fun to work with. But when I bought the agency, we had two banks. We had the largest um, uh, vacation 
resort in Oregon. We had business in Idaho, Washington State, in in uh, California. So we so I, I bought a very very sharp agency with a great creative group. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened when I bought the agency was called Ralston Group. And a couple of years later, we bought an agency called Citrus, a very small agency, but very tight with Nike. We bought them for their Nike business. We liked the name Citrus more, so we took the name Citrus. Mm-hmm. And and that's how I got two pieces of recurring, which is nice, recurring Nike business. Uh, yeah, recur- key, key word right there, recurring. Yes. Um, but it is cool that they are known for you know choosing some boutique firms and mixing it up and making sure they're always getting a fresh perspective. Um, you know, I do like that. I mean, Wyden and Kennedy yes. certainly are, are, you know, getting the bulk of that. Um, but that's a pretty cool approach. But so let's back up just for a minute in terms of agency ownership, because this is your specialty. This is this is your forte. This is your body of experience. And this is a question that kind of comes even just a little bit more off the cuff from me. And I know that other agency owners and other entrepreneurs that are listening wonder this kind of thing. There is something that happens over time as you get older and you start realizing that things fail, things change, you have to make transitions, you know, and as much as people talk about failure as um, as a trying to reframe it, it's a good thing. It means you're innovating or, you know, you have to take it in stride. It's always going to happen. You have to accept it, maybe embrace it and work with that kind of thing. It is still, no matter how you slice it, brutally difficult to take failure. And to deal with change. And even I can think in our recent, you know, history here at our agency, we've we've transitioned from being that media buying agency into definitely more of an inbound agency. And I, we're not exclusive inbound, not expu- exclusively digital, because we still have this little nuance in this art of we still can integrate some really great outbound marketing um, you know, experiences and link it together successfully with inbound so that people get to maximize that marketing automation and really get the benefits of maybe creating even, I would say, their website as turning it into an outside salesperson. So that's a lot to say to kind of tee you up for getting some wisdom from you about how how do you what is your advice about handling some of this failure and 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 how have you found it to work for you to reframe you know transitions as a part of you know your career of your journey and and for you as a professional well i'll go, let me go backwards um i i sold my agency a few years ago and uh, one of the reasons i sold it was that i saw that we needed to morph into a different agency system uh because that the world was changing so let, let's just use a round number let's let's say it was eight years ago that i sold the agency um obviously things were uh trending much more digital uh, I, uh, we were a full service agency. Uh, our clients required our full services. And again, I want to say that I had a fantastic creative team. So it, it, our, our, our thinking and our creative product was stellar. As I had a copywriter uh, who was as good as any copywriter I'd ever worked with at any agency in my career. So things were great, except that I saw that the agency was uh, in need of uh, – to put it mildly, being refreshed, or or maybe to use your earlier words in this podcast, we needed to burn it down and rebuild it, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes sometimes you get lucky, yeah. you know, of, and someone I, does I, it for I, you, and you get insurance yeah. money. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I don't advise it, but you know, it, it tends to force you to, to, to you know to renew yourself. Um, yes, it does. Uh, right, you know, it's like uh, we don't like forest fires, but we know that actually forest fires are part of nature. 
okay, that said. Uh, so I, I just didn't want to do a reinvention at that point. And, and I, saw, I sold the agency. I spent six months, let's say, polishing the Apple, and so, so to speak, and then, and then selling the agency. Um, I do, however, deal uh, on a weekly basis with, with agencies that are in some state of um, malaise, and frankly, the only an agency doesn't call me up if everything's working because that's not what I do for a living. I, I, I help fix agencies or help them develop a business development plan that's going to help them grow. So they're not they're not calling me up if they're in, you know super successful. Um, there are lots of reasons for failure in, in the agency world. Uh, some are what I call macro, which is that clients pay less money. They've gone to a project basis. Relationships don't last as long as they used to. It's difficult to project revenues moving forward in the agency business because, frankly, we don't know what's going to happen. You do this project for a client. It's six months. You don't. Uh, are they going to come back? Are they done forever? Are they going to be replaced? Um, it's 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 uh, very difficult. Obviously, technology today changes on almost a monthly basis, and 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 clients are concerned about that. Agencies have to keep up. Um, in the days that I started, there was radio, television, outdoor, and print. That's four ways that you could spend the client's money. Today, there are, I'll pick a simple number, (laughs) 100 ways to spend the client's money. Yes, for sure, for sure. Okay, and that means that you're you're spending more time trying to figure out how to spend it. Uh, The recession uh, caused a great deal of pain across all industries, so everybody looked at at what they pay for everything. So there are a lot of issues, and I think it's important for agencies to know their business model. Most don't. Most don't really have a business plan. I think it's important for them to have a marketing plan that makes sense. And I think it's important for them to figure out what it is that they want to do for a living. Uh, I am most impressed by agencies that are willing to become specialists. And there are great advantages to being a specialist. Mm-hmm. And do you find that um, that there are many agencies, or maybe you'd say there are almost no agencies, that are actually treating themselves like a client themselves? Oh, that's always, I mean, well, again, I want to say that the majority of agencies I talk to, although I do talk to some people that are not about to hire me, I just, friends of mine that run really successful agencies, but the majority of agencies I talk to have a problem. And a key problem, without question, you can ask anybody in business development, uh, almost across the board in advertising is the issue of we're an advertising and marketing agency, but we don't, we're not good at advertising and marketing for ourselves. Hmm. Uh, You know, that was the biggest piece uh you know, from the process, uh, you know, path that you put us on um, that really helped us see how important it was going to be to list ourselves, even on our project management board, we are listed as a client. We have all the same deliverables as a client. And I would agree it has made all the difference for us. And not only because you have to, first of all, you believe in marketing, you should do it for yourself, um, but also you hone your skills doing it for yourself because you do know your own uh, personas, you do know your ideal audience the best, you intrinsically know them. And so you really understand the process or the paces you're putting a client through if you put yourself through it. And it, it has been incredibly helpful for us. Likewise, you know, this last year, I was speaking with a lot of market research firms. In fact, I was in London uh, this earlier this year. And oh, by the way, thank you for your I forgot I'd talk with you. You gave me a great contact there. I had so much fun. Um, but, uh, you know, I was speaking there with market researchers and they all are like practically poo-pooing marketing agencies. And I'm like, guys, 
you, you guys completely exist because there are marketing agencies and full service marketing agencies and inbound marketing agencies. And we need those stats. We need the research. But they themselves fail to actually market themselves. Right. It just blew me away. Yes. Okay. Well, it's as, as you know, as you know, this is this is the biggest issue um, agencies. And if you're doing this uh, right on and you're probably in the top 20 percent need to uh, create a project, uh, an ongoing project for themselves that fits into their whatever their project management system is for their clients. Yes, the agency has to be one of your clients and somebody has to raise their hand and say, we're not doing what we said we were going to do. Mm hmm. Because it's a, it's a it's an amazingly huge problem, mm-hmm. uh, and it, when they agencies tell me they're too busy to do business development, I say, well, what are you going to do when you lose that top one or two clients? Because it's inevitable. Right. I mean, you, you you have to you you have to work with a great <laughs> with a great sense of fear. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Peter. <laughs> well, oh. I mean, I you know even uh, the dry cleaner uh, down the street, uh, if you know if they're savvy, they're thinking about what's next. Uh, mm-hmm. I live in Mexico. Mex- Mexicans are not known for their marketing savvy. It's very interesting. I mean, I've had conversations in Mexico City and, and in other cities here. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's it, in, in the United States, we're the best marketers in the world. I mean, arguably, maybe the English are better. But we need to apply our, that skill to our own business wow. as, if, if you're in the agency business. Okay. Well, there's two things. First of all, you, you, you fixed my process stuff and we got on that, that next bandwagon of treating ourselves like our own client. What, what, what next mistake can I expect that I'm going to <laughs> make? <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what you're hearing out there as you're, um, you know, as you're consulting with agencies. Well, again, I'll go back to something I said earlier about specialization and, and special. And I, I'm not the only person talking about this, but specialization, which is really figuring out your, your your brand position, is an understanding of: Are you geographical? Are you an agency based in Kansas City, and you say, you know what, I'm going to kill it within a, a, a three-hour drive. Uh, area from Kansas City, and frankly, you can make a good living doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or do I want more regional and national clients, which means that just saying you're full service and being in, in Kansas or in Chicago, is that's not going to cut it. You now have to think about specialization, and that could be category specialization. I'm the best uh, pet products agency, or it's a tech uh, specialization. I'm the best mobile agency, you know, or I'm the best demographic. I I am the best Gen X agency. Mm-hmm. Just pick something. And it doesn't mean that you have to shut everything else down in your agency. In fact, I, I have a client in Louisiana that has a general agency for Louisiana and a food and beverage specialty agency under a different name for their expertise in food and beverage. So, you don't have to just be one brand. I mean, your mm-hmm. clients aren't necessarily one brand, and neither does an agency. Mm-hmm. And that's one way around this specialization issue. So one interesting question I've always had about specialization is um, specifically about uh, client exclusivity. So it, you don't, mm-hmm. you can't jump all the way down to say, hey, we're experts in, in marketing market researchers because you'll turn around and be marketing against yourself. Well, I... I, I 
going to try not to be too flippant, but okay. this is one of the age-old kind of solutions here. Is if you have uh, if you have two cli- if you have a client in a category, the second client is a conflict. If you have three or four clients in that category, you're an expert. So, <laughs> so I suggest that there is a way to become an expert. Uh, you know, having uh, competing brands is always going to be an issue. But I talked with a healthcare specialty agency this morning that is so specialized in a certain area of healthcare that they've got multiple clients in that space. And the clients say, you know what, I need what you have so badly. Mm-hmm. that I'm willing to uh, to assume that you're not sharing confidential information. And that's that's the case. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, in the, it, we still have some clients out there like a Procter & Gamble who, let's just say you're working on Tide, don't want you working on uh, Johnson & Johnson uh, diapers because it conflicts with another Procter & Gamble brand. I've seen this happen for years. This was like a Saatchi issue because we dealt with such huge huge mm-hmm. clients. And, you know, that's just crazy that, uh, you know, we're not working on diapers. We're just working on Tide. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are there are many issues with with um, client issues relating to similar clients. I, I, I just always told my clients, don't worry about it. And if they had that problem, uh, you know, we either worked it out or I said, I can't work with you. Right, right. Well, if you're, you know, if you're great, you can say no. If you're not great <laughs> and, you know... Well, you got to find another word. You, you'd be proud of me. I did say no to a client the other day, and I kind of had a moment. I sat at my desk, and I'm like, wow, that email was hard to write. And then I thought, oh, my God, that feels so good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know? I've, I've fired clients. Uh-huh. And actually, the only reason I've ever – I, I fi- fired a couple of clients, but one was that they were mean. Hmm. Uh, and that was – you know, what, what that was about was walking out of my office and seeing an account executive crying. And I said, oh, whoa, 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 what's going on? Yeah. And uh, we tried to rectify the situation and, and couldn't. So yeah. I said, look, this is not working. We yeah. can't, this is not part of our culture. Yeah. Well, I've been there. I've done that. And uh, and I've paid the price. And you know that you can say that. And it does sound very easy for you to say. It sounds easy for me to say. But doing that and losing that massive commission is a whole nother, you know, ball game. And it's, it is sure. very difficult to walk through those things as an agency. I just, you know, I don't think I was prepared for just how hard it would be. Well, I always uh, say again, uh, you know, using some of my humor, uh, probably the easiest way to run an agency is to be married to a rich spouse. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So let's talk about that because you said that people are, you know, people who call you are in pain. They're usually something is failing, maybe not the whole agency, but something is failing pretty hard. But you wrote truly a seminal book on agency business development. And I love it. Um, it's uh, uh, buy this book, win more pitches. <laughs> you, you really have to uh, read this book. And I think it does not just apply to agencies, but it truly is about understanding who we're going out after and that that uh, business development conversation that absolutely must be um, happening at all times, whether it's in an agency or in, you know, in your work. So I think your solution, you would say to, you know, um, for success is, well, just make a crap ton of money, <laughs> you know, have right, lots of right. business coming in the door, right? So talk about that. Let's let's hear a little bit um, about your book and um, and why you think it was, was so important to to write it and what, what do you think it actually delivers? Well, I'll, I'll tell you a, a quick little funny story I heard this morning. Um, uh, an agency called me up, a New York agency called me up a couple of days ago. We scheduled a call, so we had a call this morning. And he told me at the beginning of the call that 
He, uh, their issue, by the way, is that they're getting into pitches because they're a very smart agency, but they're not winning pitches. So I'll probably work with them on their master business development plan in general because everything ties together. Uh, but they clearly are getting into pitches and not winning. So I can, I can help them. But he told me a funny thing. He said that he had bought my book, which is uh, – and the title is Buy This Book, Win More Pitches. And he put it in his – he hadn't read it yet, but he put it in his, his briefcase to take to the meeting hoping there was some osmosis. And I told him I should probably rename the book, <laughs> Buy This Book, Read It, and Win More Pitches. Right? Yes. I <laughs> so totally he, saw that joke coming and it still yeah, was yeah. funny. <laughs> I, I, I don't, yeah, I, that, that was a new one for me. Yeah. Um, I, so I, 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 in studying the market, I wrote the book for two reasons. So I'll talk personal reason. I – 99% of my marketing is inbound. People find me. They do they do searches on Google or they look on LinkedIn or they see me on Twitter and everything's tied together. I'm pretty good at inbound marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they find me. And it's, it works for me because the people that find me have a problem. I'm not, I'm not going after people that, that don't have a problem. They have a problem. They find me. It's, it's like the purest way you can grow a business in inbound. Right. But I did, I, I did say, you know what, I need I, – I, why not write a book? It's the second book I've written, so I've already written a book. And I said, what's a subject that's near and dear to every agency, and it's pitching. So I wrote a book about pitching, and I wrote it for two reasons, one, to help agencies, and two, to help me. So I, I always recommend agencies that they write something. I think books are a good idea, and I sometimes I say, just do a zine. I like the physical nature of a book. So for me, it was a business development tool for me. But it also, uh, I mean, it got, it, it's, I'm, I'm selling, a, I've sold a few thousand books. So mm-hmm. these books are sitting uh, somewhere in somebody's bookshelf. Hopefully they've read it. But I've definitely gotten business because people read my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bottom line of the book is the word used earlier, process. Right. Uh, you, ha- you have to have a smart process for how you pitch. And that process can include something as sort of obvious to a certain extent of, of starting your pitch with an, in, with an insight about the client. Most agencies start a pitch talking about themselves. It's like the bad date. Right. You know, you meet somebody, you go out for drinks, and she just talks about herself for 30 minutes. Now, that might work better if you're, uh, you know, I don't want to get too sexist and get into the understanding the male-female thing. But, um, you know, I could get bored out of my mind listening to somebody just yap about themselves. Well, that, that's what happens in many pitches. Mm-hmm. And, and how do I know that? I've been in pitches. I've won pitches. I've lost pitches. But in the book, I interview a lot of um, agency search consultants who tell me that's the number one issue. Agencies can't shut up talking about themselves. Mm-hmm. So one of my simpler insights about insights is – Start the meeting with an insight that gets the client's attention. And people may say, well, how do I do that? And one of the, one of the places I point people to is Google Consumer Research, which is a incredibly low-cost but powerful research tool that Google has. And ask the right question, get the right answer, and open up the meeting with that insight. Wow. So that's an example of just one thing in the book. Uh, but, you know, I had to write something else because a one-page book is a zine, and I wanted to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, um, so many business books that I read could be a one pager and I'd get more out of it. But I have to say, it, it, I have to, it's been a while since I've read uh, the book. So I really should pull it out. This should be my summer project, Peter, is yeah, to read this it again. Will be a, it's a long summer project. Okay. <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> when you translate it into Spanish, then I'll read it. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> then I'll know you, you have accomplished it. Well, right. I'd love to hear a little bit too on your view because you are in a unique position to give us a little bit of a commentary on what is happening in agency world right now. I have a much smaller audience for this podcast that is specifically just in agency 
agency world, we have a lot of entrepreneurs or a lot of VPs of uh, of marketing, you know, CMOs and things like that, and some freelancers. So the agency ownership is a little bit smaller, but I do think people are interested in what is trending in agencies. And, you know, I, I recently read something where one of the big agencies was moving, you know, going to completely go to decentralize and go back to small offices. And it's like, it feels to me like we're like expand, contract, expand, you know, and, and there's always kind of the different new thing, a new twist about how we're going to deliver. So can you give me a little bit of insight? Because you talk to so many more agencies on a regular basis. Well, again, I want to say that, uh, you know, there are different sort of different strokes for different parts of the industry, uh, small versus larger agencies. The larger agencies today are having an interesting problem. And the, and the problem is that they are uh, being nibbled at by management consultancies that in some cases are, are also buying agencies. So um, you've got these large consultancies that are saying, well, why don't we add um, advertising to the things that we do when we go into a client company? And those consultancies, a McKinney, for example, um, already have relationships with Ford and General Motors and Procter and Gamble. They're already they're already inside. So they are saying, well, you know what? We can we can do marketing too. So that's an issue, a very big issue at the at the top level. Uh, there's also an issue, and this is for both small and 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 uh, all size agencies. Is some clients are bringing work in house, and that's been going on for years. But I think it's been increasing because a lot of what clients do today, because they they love. Um, uh, content is they say, well, gee, I can create that content in-house. Uh, I'll hire a writer. I don't need an agency to write my blog or to think about my social media program. You know, I'll get my cousin. She just graduated college. She'll do it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there, that's another thing that's that I think is affecting the, the world of marketing. But I'll go back to the beginning of being of things I talk about. Uh, margins are slimmer. That's a big issue. Agencies have to be much smarter about how they market themselves. Agencies much must control their costs because that's the only thing that they can control. Uh, this is not a business anymore about how, how cool your reception area looks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in fact, at Saatchi, not, not Saatchi London because we, we looked bare bones. We looked like all we were about was ideas. They, they were smart there. But uh, Saatchi in New York built a new – when I came back to New York, there was a new business suite. There was a kitchen. Mm-hmm. There was a little theater. There was a conference room. There was a, a very comfortable living room. And I looked at it and went, oh, no, I had, you know, this again, this is at a time when the agency was hurting. And I, and I thought we just look too rich, you know. Right. So there are a lot of elements to how agencies position themselves and how they look and how they manage their cost structure. Uh, I think there are issues with projects. This is a big issue because you never, as an agency, you never know how many full-time employees you, you should have. Uh, and we <laughs> wait, also, wait, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing, but on the inside, I'm crying right now. <laughs> that's a big issue. So uh, sometimes I consult with agencies about how to, how to build and maintain, because that's the important part, uh, a freelance, a group of freelancers. Uh, one day, I, there was a freelancer working in my company. He was a copywriter, great copywriter. And I, I took him out to lunch, and I said, well, so what is it like being a freelancer? What, what's good and bad? And when he got to the bad, he said, it's lonely, which I thought was a very interesting insight. He said, look, I don't re- – you know, Chris, agencies have Christmas parties. I'm not invited. I'm not, I'm not a part of an agency anymore. So I thought – and this was when I was thinking about reinventing my agency because I wanted to be more hub-and-spoke, uh, more, more freelance talent. And, le- and fewer full-time employees. Mm-hmm. I realized that if I wanted these freelancers to love me, 
I had to love them. It wasn't just about giving them money. So it's like, how do we, how do we make them part of our culture? Is there a company newsletter that they get? I mean, things like that. Do we, do we invite them to when we go out for beers? So when we call up the freelancer and say, I need some help, they don't say, you know, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. Because right. by the way, freelancers are very busy these days. <laughs> so how do you make them a loved one and not just a freelancer? Oh, I love it. That's a great, a great, great insight. And that gives you the flexibility because you still need to ha- have that flexibility as an agency owner, but it doesn't mean you need to cut um, you know, cut the ties so deeply. I love that. That's a great insight. Well, I just want my, my, uh, listeners to check out this book. It is, uh, the Leviton pitch, uh, buy this book, win more pitches, which we have already established that you also need to read the book. So not, yeah, not just affix it to your body. Right. Just, I'm going to have not people a, creating that. I exactly, love it. Right. I love it. But you know, just in, in my perspective, looking back on it, and I know you, maybe you want to say a few things about it. But to me, it was um, it was a quick read because I felt like it was it came from such a place of expertise. You know, it was it felt to me like it, like I was just having a conversation with someone, someone who actually understood my world. And I really think it would apply to, uh, you know, outside of business and not just agency worlds, but more about um, thinking through a truly a comprehensive and a detailed marketing plan about how you are going to go out and get the business that you say you want. What's a part of that wish list? Um, and it, it forced us to look back and understand our capabilities and, and really hone in on what was the dream? What, what, what do we want this company to look like? Um, but I loved the plan you brought us through um, because it it felt like it was absolutely manageable um, the way we could start the process. And I think in the end, the thing I took away was not only that you helped us really push towards process, but you pushed us toward getting consistent with our process. And I think that has really made all the difference because I think a lot of us owners, a lot of us um, CEOs, a lot of us, um, you know, uh, presidents and even selling presidents, we get really excited about the business growth. We have the idea in our head and we have this vision and we just go say it and blurt it out once. But really helping our team get consistent in the marketing plan to work toward it is really a whole different ball of game than just sharing the vision. And I really appreciated that about the book. So um, tell us about who you're looking for. Who would be an ideal client um, to reach out to you, Peter? Well, again, I, you know, I don't want to say it's an agency in distress. Uh, in, in fact, this morning, the, the, the story I told about the guy that t- took the book to a meeting because he didn't have time to read it, he thought just having it <laughs> would help him, uh, is in fact a successful agency. But he says, I need to be more successful, right. which was interesting, right? So that's, that's um, uh, I would say probably, uh, well, I'm not going to say my favorite client, but a, but a very interesting client for me is one who is successful that says, I, I'm, I'm batting 300, but I'd rather bat 500, mm-hmm. okay? And how do I do that? Because that's, that's an interesting challenge. It's, it's not like I'm fixing every part of the car. Uh, it's taking the engine and getting more horsepower out of it. So that's a good one. Ooh, I another, love it. another thing I love hearing from clients is, uh, and it doesn't have to mean they need to sell the agency tomorrow, but they say, I want to create a valuable company that someone will buy in five years which is fa- it's a fantastic objective to me because it's not about I need to get out of this and sell it next week. It's how do, what do I need to do today to create value down the road so when somebody looks at me, they go, wow, this is a fantastic company. Mm-hmm. And frankly, that, that works for any business. Um, if you want to sell your business at some point in time, even if it's way down the road, ask yourself, am I building as valuable as a company as I can? 
And that certainly works in the world of venture capitalists. They're looking at small companies and saying, you know, is this a company that's going to create value? And I think that that's a way that people should really look at their business. And I would even suggest read read things about venture capital market. There's a lot of stuff online and they're the they're both the smartest and most evil people I've ever met. <laughs> I would, <laughs> uh, I would say, you know, think of yourself as a as a as a, a baby company, uh, a venture funded company, and and act like that. Hmm. Well, you have to check it out. Peter is also a prolific blogger, and I think a lot of these interesting topics that you know he he um, mentions here, he pontificates on quite well. So check it out at peterleviton.com, and it is L-E-V-I-T-A-N. So you find him. He's on Twitter all the time and uh, on LinkedIn. And you know, if you have a couple of, um, uh, if you have a review for this podcast, we just ask that you give us, of course, the five star rating. But please leave us the review in Spanish. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see if we can uh, pass it on to Peter and see what he can do about it. But if you have other questions for him, then reach out to him at peterleviton.com. But Peter, this has been super fun. It's always great talking to you. And I appreciate you giving your, your insight into this. Um, it's not just into our industry, but also into the world, the painful, what I call the, uh, um, the stunningly, uh, discomfort, uncomfortable world of entrepreneurship. <laughs> So I really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best in, in Mexico and especially, you know, getting to ne next time we podcast, it's going to be all in Spanish. All right. There you go. Well, thanks for still. It's been great. <laughs> I love it. Have a great day and adios. Adios. Hasta luego. <laughs> This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.